For those of you who are visiting, my name is Paul, and I have the privilege of being one of the ministers on staff here. Uh, We've been in a series of messages uh, that we've called uh, Unbalanced, where we've been trying to uh, get, basically take our thoughts about God and take them deeper, let them uh, get into our hearts and show us where not only intellectually we follow God's will, but also emotionally uh, how we can have a more complete life, a more balanced life. Uh, with our God. And I want to start today with something a little bit different because I have a tendency in my own uh, preaching and teaching style of trying to speak, speak something into the Bible that's not there. I really want to listen to God's word first so that we know kind of where we're going today. And so I've asked, uh, I've asked Ellen to read the words we're going to be learning about today from God's uh, scripture. If you wanted to follow along, page 984 in one of the Pew Bibles that we have right here, if you open page 984, you'll be able to follow along. It's in Colossians 3. Go ahead. Colossians 3, 12 through 24. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ Dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, Love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service or as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Great Omission, says this The greatest issue facing the world today, with all its heartbreaking needs, is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens in every corner of human existence. We're talking today about our tendency to divide our lives into two compartments. We have the God stuff, And we have our stuff. But the thing is is that there is no our stuff anymore if we want to call ourselves Christians. 
Something that I've learned in my years of ministry is that there is no end to a person's ability to play pretend. And I don't want to speak judgment over anyone else. I'm talking about myself. I mean, in weeks like this where I'm preparing to bring a lesson, I will spend hours in my office in personal study, in prayer, in studying scripture, and I will spend a day at this. And then, okay, I put in a good day, a good Jesus day, here we go, and I'm going to get in my car. And then I, someone has the audacity to pull out in front of me and go less than the posted speed limit. And it takes me 0.04 seconds to pronounce their idiocy and their worthlessness. Or what's worse is that I can spend a day in uh, trying to work with people and help them with uh, some of their issues and just the, to spend some time with people and just the, uh, it could be very exhausting emotionally and I call it people time. Sometimes if I have too much people time, I get cranky, I get irritable, but I go home. And one of my boys uh, needs their dad. They need some help with homework, or they just want to play, they just want to be with me, and I treat them like a nuisance. It hits very close to me because I've read stories about and listened to interviews with several pastors whose children have walked away from the faith. It becomes a very prominent issue, and a common thread that I hear in their stories is that there was a difference between the man who they saw at church and who came home. There was church dad, who everyone else got to see the best of, but I got what was left over. And I had put in a lot of time trying to keep my kids from turning into annoying preacher's kids, all right? Because I love you, but more because I don't want them. <laughs> I knew those snot-nosed brats growing up. I didn't want that for them, but I care so much more deeply about their souls. I know that they're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven based on the coattails of my faith. So when they look at me, if I'm going to challenge them to become a Christian, to become a disciple of Jesus, if I am their example, is that what they should want to become? Because the fact is, Many Christians make lousy human beings. We think that walking through the church, even if you're here every Sunday, that somehow this 60 minutes of Jesus is going to provide cover for the remaining six days and 23 hours of our lives. By the way, I'm happy that you're here. <laughs> Welcome to church. I'm starting out a little bit heavier than I'm used to doing that because there are severe consequences to us getting this wrong. I struggle with this. In Romans 6, it says, we are those who have died to sin. So how can we live in it any longer? And yet more and more, I find that I am struggling with this idea of trying to surrender my entire life to the kingship of God. How can I give every corner of who I am? And so I'm asking that we sit today at the feet of Jesus and listen to what he has to say to us about this. Charles Spurgeon said, to a man who lives under God, nothing is secular. Everything is sacred. And this will be our guiding thought as we approach to unpack the text that we just heard. How can we remove the walls in our lives, these compartments that we have created? How can we live our lives fully to the glory of God? And before I get to answering the how, I feel that we need to answer the why. Why should we do this? What is our primary motive? What moves us to put off the things of the world and put on Christ? 
It's not obligation. It's not guilt. Our motivation has got to be the grace of Jesus. And that shouldn't be a surprise or anything new to someone who spent a lot of time in church. We throw around this word grace a lot, but I don't want to gloss over the definition of it. Grace is unmerited favor. It is God showing his love for us when we did not deserve it at all. The Apostle Paul writes in the book of Romans that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were still in open rebellion for, uh, against God, and Jesus surrendered his will. He endured a brutal death to save us. So when we talk about the grace of Jesus, that, that being our core motivation, what I mean is that God does not give us anything good. He does not bless us thinking that we're just going to keep it for ourselves. Instead, he gives us blessings so that they could flow through us for the goodness of others. Everything is meant to be paid forward and be a blessing to, to other people. Colossians 3, starting in verse 12 through 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. If we're going to get rid of the me stuff and let it all become God stuff, that's going to first start with us acknowledging where we have put on the world. We've put on anger, malice, resentment. We've had temptations and sensuality from the world, and we need to recognize where we have let those creep into our lives so that we can remove them and then put on Christ so that we could build our lives on holiness and pursue purity in Jesus. Paul's pointing out here that the first step in this new life is to put off all of those things that were getting you nowhere, they were digging you deeper, and to put on the things that build up unity and make others more important than ourselves. In verse 12, he says that we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. This is the start. God loved us. God loves us. He will always love us. But when we try to keep his presence contained to say that there's only a few God things in my life, we try to say, God, I don't want you to have anything to do with this part of my life. And we could try to keep him in a box. There are consequences to that. And when I say that there's punishment to it, it's not that God is adding any undue burdens onto our lives. He's not saying that you have to now bear this because you chose to say no. Actually, the punishment is that God gives us exactly what we are asking for. He will totally abandon us. If we say, God, I don't want you to have anything to do with this, he says, fine. See how that works for you. He doesn't fight us. He withdraws from those areas. And then we keep, we find that once we let one of those areas go, then we want more and more areas. God, I don't want you to be part of this or this, but I'm still going to need to do this. And our punishment is that we get what we are asking for. We get a life without God at all. And no matter what you think about God, you've never had a life without him. The rain falls and the sun shines on the just and the unjust. And when all of his blessings are gone, that's when you realize you did not want what you've been asking for. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses is reminding the Israelites about why God was being good to them. He says, God's saying to the Israelites, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you. 
Why did God choose Israel? We've talked about it before. It was not because Israel was a great and mighty nation. I'd like to compare them to Delaware. I have no problem with Delaware, but I have never really thought much of them, so I don't know what it is. It had nothing to do with how great that they were. It had everything to do with God's love for them. So we never forget that our motive in this life is not based on our own goodness or what we deserve. Our motive in life is that God first loved us. And as we have been loved, we should love. And Paul writes that God sets us apart as holy. Now, when I was growing up in the church, and I don't, nobody deliberately taught me this, it was just my perception, was that I always equated holiness with perfection. But that's not what it means. It means being set apart. It's being sanctified or sterilized from the things of this world. And it's setting us apart for a greater purpose. And it's a, a connection that I want to make is a marriage ceremony, is that when a man and woman, they are set apart from all others so that they can be unified in a unique relationship. They are set apart from other people and other relationships to be in this one. And so that's what it means for holiness is that you are set apart from the things of this world so that you can be in a relationship with God and remove yourself and set yourself apart from all other distractions and relationships. So we're not only loved and we're set apart, but we are also forgiven. God forgives us. He loves us and he wants to provide for us. And he doesn't do these things because we have earned any of them. He does it because he wants to give us a new life full of new opportunities for new growth. And Paul says, therefore, because you have been loved and set apart, because you have been forgiven, you will now be able to display the fruits of the Spirit. You have the ability to be compassionate. Compassion, it's taking the feeling of responsibility for another person and providing for them with the blessings that God gave us first. Kindness, which is focusing on another person's best interests. Humility, estimating yourself properly before God and estimating others properly before God. Gentleness, and I read that the word in Greek here is, means like a soothing wind or a healing medicine. And I was thinking about back in July when it was just so stinking humid up here. When you walk outside, you're walking through someone's breath. And you remember that? It's awful. I love the fall right now. It's so great. But when you're in that really terrible humidity, but then you get this breeze coming in and it breaks up the monotony. That's what we are to be to the world. We are to be be a nice, gentle breeze that can soothe and provide comfort for them. God provides for us, and we are to be like that to the world. And he says we are to have patience, forbearance, forgiveness, all of this. It must be accomplished in love. We, we have been called by God, and we have been loved, and we are now being called by God to love. It's circular. Theology, which is studying the ways and having these thoughts about God, it ultimately means nothing if it does not intersect with our reality. We cannot separate them. Many of us may have a great theology, but we have not let God permeate every part of our practical reality. And Paul is saying here that we need to expand our understanding that Jesus will always be enough for us to live the life of love and forgiveness that we have received. So we are told to put on love, to put off the things of this world so that we could put on love. So that is our motive. It is the grace of Jesus. 
And our affirmation that we are doing things right is the peace of Christ. Verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your thought, rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So we go from our character to our conduct. Now this word here, if I understand what I read about the original Greek, was that this word rule would mean the equivalent of like a referee. And that I can understand because I like sports. Uh, The peace of Christ is an umpire in our lives that tells us if we're fair or foul, if we're in or out or safe or disqualified. The peace is one of those words that we can bring our all understanding to, but Eric talked about this a few weeks ago. Peace does not just mean that we're not fighting. No, that biblical word shalom means wholeness. It goes beyond the absence of conflict. It means offering openness and honesty and sharing life together even in the midst of our differences. And we read here that the peace of Christ is to be the referee or the umpire for your heart. But when the rule of God is not the rule of our lives, we realize that we are not at peace with God. Peace does not mean perfection. It means relationship. It's opening yourself up and allowing God to become a part of your entire life. Over the years, I've had conversations with people, people who, in their words, said that they really wanted to have a life of wholeness and completeness in Jesus, and yet everything else outside of life, they'd be living in a situation and in a relationship that was overtly against the teachings of Scripture. And if I would press them on this, I would have them look at me and say, you know, God is not okay with that. They say, that's okay. I'm at peace with this. And my biblical response to them is, so? I can find peace with anything that makes me feel good, but do I have peace with God's heart? Can I offer my actions as glory to his name or simply glory to my own satisfaction? If we listen to this trope of just listen to your heart, follow your heart, the Old Testament says the heart is desperately wicked. It is beyond cure. It could be deceived above all things. So we need to acknowledge that we are not the arbiters of what is right and wrong. God is. And a God who dearly loves us and is setting us apart for better living, we need to realize that it's not our behavior, it's our hearts that need to change so that he can change our appetites. So our motivation is grace and love. Our affirmation is peace. And how does that peace come together? It comes from our guide, which is the word of God. Peace comes from what the word of God says and abiding with it. In verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So it says, let it dwell, let it make its home inside of you. How does the peace of Christ rule us? It's when the word of Christ dwells in us. The peace of Christ will show us that the word of God reveals the will of God. And you cannot rely on the preacher of your church to tell you what the word of God says. You need to let the word of God tell you what the word of God says. If you're thinking you could come into church and just say, okay, one of the ministers is going to tell me what the Bible says, don't trust me or Jordan or Eric We are like you. We are trying to figure this out. We are letting God's word teach us something new every day. We don't have all of this figured out. So if you're letting your preacher tell you what the word of God says, then you have have misunderstood the power of the word of God. We need to join together so that our hearts can unite around the truth. 
Because you can know the book, but not know the author. But you can't know the author unless you've read the book. So the word of God should dwell richly within us. It, can, it should make us feel at home with the truth. And the spirit of God will give us peace throughout all of this. Let the spirit of God bring the word of God to your understanding so that you can know the riches and the goodness of Jesus. So our motivation is grace. Our affirmation is peace. Our guide is the word. And I'd love to just stop there and end 10 minutes early and walk off the stage a hero. But the word of God doesn't let us do that. Because Paul takes what we just learned and he applies it to the hardest place for us to live out this truth, our homes. And if you listen to the passage, you saw it on there, you're gearing up for a fight. He says, you know, he's going to say it. He's going to say, wives submit, husbands love, here we go. But the Bible takes it to our home. It is easy for me to cast an image on stage here or for you to think that I live some level of godliness and holiness that I really don't. But we need to keep going from our character of what we know to our conduct, what we do. Because what you believe affects, what you be, affects how you behave. And so we go into the home. But we start in verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And this is a big issue because when we talk about our conduct, we're not talking about feelings. We're not talking about desires. We're not talking about rewards. We have to base all of our practical living, everything that we do, on the authority of Jesus. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. The name of Jesus carries so much more significance than our culture will allow. Jesus has become a slang term or a funny expression or an obscenity, and yet he's the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. He's the creator of all the world. Colossians 1.17, it says that he is before all things. In him, all things hold together. Nothing happens that does not come from the authority of Jesus. So our lives should change because of his authority. Now, I didn't have enough fun poking fun at uh, uh, kids' sports last week, so I'm going to go more on dangerous territory here. There's a teaching that I read by Dr. Gregory Boyd that uh, I found very convicting. And he points out that God is the one who establishes all authority. But we need to be careful that the authority that is placed over us, that the reason that we honor that authority is not for that authority's sake. It's for the sake of our king. And I'm going to be careful because some of you are going to read into this politics and you're going to miss the point. In the United States, we have a president. I'm very aware of who is in that office right now. But it's not about that person. Pick your favorite president. Pick the one that you actually liked, if indeed you can find one. Good luck. But You have been placed by God under their authority as president of the United States, but I do not abdicate the authority of Jesus to the president of the United States. I honor the president. I show him respect so that I can honor and show Jesus the respect that he's asked for. That's the pecking order in our world. We are not taken to man or to man's authority, but we honor the authority that God has placed us under so so that we can bring Jesus glory that he has asked for and that he deserves. So now, let's talk about our homes. Let's go into our home relationships. Verse 18, wives, 
Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Verse 18, as is fitting with the Lord. Verse 20, for this pleases the Lord. Do you guys get the authority here? If you think I'm going to break this down verse by verse and describe what he means by, you know, wives submit and husbands love, I'm I'm not going to because Jordan's coming back. You can ask him. Uh, But, uh, (laughs) no, but I'm actually more focused on the grander vision of this text. Because in the home, if there is one place where kindness, goodness, gentleness, compassion, love, and unity, where should that be on display, church? It should be in our homes. Husbands, treat your wives like the cherished person that they are to you. Wives, show your husbands how to be the man that they could be by believing in them and helping them get there. Children, mine's right there. Children, (laughs) all of you, understand that your parents have a horrible job. And they're not going to be good at parenting until they're grandparents. And you don't make it easier. (laughs) And in all of this, we submit to every authority in every walk of our lives. We do this so that the authority of Jesus can be seen in the world and that people can see a healthy home. And I'm I'm scared to death that most of our homes have become more like accounting firms where ledgers are held about what is being done badly. And people look at a ledger sheet and we realize we're never gonna pay off the debt, so why bother? That's not God's vision for our homes. Paul is displaying here a radical concept for what the home could be by the authority of Jesus. That husbands and wives could become equal. That they would serve with the gifts that they've been given, loving one another and serving one another. That children could be part of the family and that parents wouldn't look at children as their possessions, but rather look to encourage them and raise them up in balance where they're under the authority and submissive to their parents. And all of that is how God works his wonderful grace into our homes. Our homes could be different by the radical nature of the gospel. Because society wants to put men and women in their place. They put children in places and say that this is the right way to do it. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to show you a new way to do it. I'm going to turn it on its head and show the world what real love and unity looks like. This isn't impossible. It's just improbable. In a world that says everyone should be happy, everyone should be getting everything that they want, or it's not a loving home. And I'm here to tell you, that's a lie. Because most of the things that we really need are some of the hardest things we'll ever face. But through Jesus, it's possible. See that everything in this passage, it is centered on Jesus, as is fitting in the Lord, and this pleases the Lord. It's about the authority by which we live. And then he jumps from our homes into our workplace. Because Paul doesn't leave anything around here. There is no me stuff. It is all God stuff. We're not talking about Christianity in a phone booth. We're talking about living out the life of faith in the everyday realities that we face. And by doing that, we give Jesus glory. And we understand his glory. The world is always going to compete for that one small slice in our lives. Because they know that all that they need is a foothold to be able to take over the entire life. In verse 22, bondservants, or your translation may have slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, 
fearing the Lord. And I want to pause right there because unfortunately in our history, Christians have used this passage to justify slavery. Shame on us. Most of us dismiss this passage today because we think that this is just an irrelevant concept. That, and here's just a little bit of history, that the system of slavery in Paul's day is not like it was in colonial America. Some of it was indentured servitude. Some people would apply themselves to work for a household and become their servant, which is why you have that translation, bondservant. Now, there were those who were taken against their will, and they may have been taken as prisoners of war by the Romans, and some of those people became believers. But Paul is not talking about the social rightness of the institution of slavery. He's talking about how you can go into any circumstance you you find yourself in and be profound. And he says to them, serve in everything you do. And do it in reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. We need to know that in the worst conditions that we face, the gospel works. In the worst part of your life, the worst thing you will face in this life, the gospel of Christ will work. A broken home, broken parents, a horrible work situation. In all those circumstances, the Apostle Paul is giving us hope because of Jesus, because of his power. We could put on a new life and be redeemed. And it could be used to change histories. Even in the case of a servant or a slave, he says, you can honor God in this and the glory of Jesus can be shown. The life of a Christian disciple is hard. Jesus never hid the ball on this. The road, the gate, it's narrow. Many of us are going to try and fail. It may be a long process for God to help us put off the world and the filth that has been tearing us down so that we can put on Christ. But every day, every morning, I wake up trying to put on the new man, trusting in the power of God to provide for me. And as we draw to a close, I want to go back to where we started again. If I want God to be involved with every area of my life, if truly I want to hold nothing back, there is no more me stuff. It is all God stuff. Where do I begin? It starts with God's love. 2 Corinthians 5.14, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. It's the question of the gospel. He has asked us to invite him to every area of our lives. Will we let him in? Will we surrender because of love or obligation? Will we surrender because of love or duty? Love or fear? Love or nothing? It's what it's all about. The love of Christ compels us. It controls us. And it's our hope that the love of Jesus can change our path, can change our lives. It can change who who we are. Let us stand together right now and sing a song of love to our God.